Part Eight of Just Me by Pearl White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Among the first letters that came to me was one from a United States sailor who had seen a picture of me shown in the Philippines. Now I don't very often get love letters from male admirers, and this letter could hardly be classed as such. However, it ran in that direction, but was written in such a sweet way that it really touched me. This boy begged a photograph, saying that somehow there was something in my face that appealed to his better self, that maybe I reminded him of his mother or someone who had been very dear to him. Anyway, he wrote that he felt an affection for me that he had never had for another woman. I answered his letter, which was signed F. L. White, on board the battleship Huntington. It struck me as quite a coincidence, as my lost brother's name was Fred White. Only his middle initial was E. He had also joined the Navy years before. Well, we kept up a correspondence for about a year, and I learned that my sailor admirer's name was also Fred. His letters were awfully nice and very romantic, and I really enjoyed reading them. Finally, he wrote that he was not going to bother me any more, as he realized that a poor sailor could never aspire to be anything in my life. I didn't hear from him again until two years ago. Then he wrote a nice friendly letter, among other things telling me that he once had a sister named Pearl, whom he had heard was married and lived out in Missouri. But as he had been estranged from his family for years, he didn't know much of her. Evidently, he must have read some little squib in a magazine about me, for he was under the impression that I was born abroad. This letter sort of made me figure things out a bit, and I asked for the details of his origin, which he gave me, and I eventually found out that he was my own brother. Poor boy! That must have been an awful shock to him. His past childhood affection for me must have crept back unconsciously into his soul, and he had mistaken it for a different sentiment. He didn't communicate with me for some time after he was informed of our relationship. Then I received word that he was soon coming to New York and would look me up. That was in March 1917. In April I received word from one of the officers on board his ship that he had accidentally shot and killed himself while out on a scouting party near Sacramento, California. I wonder, was it an accident? It seems that tragedy has pursued my mother's children. My brother George, of whom I spoke in the early chapters of this book, was killed playing baseball when about twenty. Two other children were killed before my birth, one by drowning, and the other, who was only a small boy, blew his brains out with a shotgun. My sister Grace is married and living quietly with her husband, one Loy Williams, and two little children. My father is still living, and perhaps he will see his whole family extinct. Who can tell? But to get back to my career. I worked on for some months doing comedy falls and what not until I was so tired that I needed a rest, for somehow I couldn't seem to take much interest in anything. One hot summer night I sat down to think and sum up my past. I decided that I owed myself some pleasure for my years of toil. Then I got out my bank book, which had been balanced that day, July 2nd, 1913, and I found that I had the large fortune of $6,000, more money than I had ever dreamed of possessing. 
so i decided that i was too rich to work for a while and that i would go out and find myself a playground in which i could play the next day i went to the studio and announced that i was putting on my makeup for the last time that summer where are you going they asked don't know i answered but i've got too much money in the world so i've got to go out and spend it that afternoon a little idea began to creep into my mind and i hustled about new york making a lot of arrangements the next day was the fourth of july and i was booked for a picnic at coney island i was to leave at eight o'clock in the morning with a girl that shared my flat jane fernley she was quite prominent in the moving pictures then i bustled into her room and gave her an awful shock now sleeping is a sport of which i am very fond and poor jane had always been the one to drag me out of bed so naturally she was more than surprised at my early entrance into her room is it time to go to coney she sleepily asked i'm not going i announced why she questioned because i went on i'm sailing for europe at ten tomorrow morning so i want to start packing now well jane nearly passed out of the picture with surprise but when i showed her my ticket marked july fifth for a first-class cabin on the olympic she came to a little and began what are you going there for i don't know is all i could answer do you know anybody in the whole of europe she questioned not a living soul i truthfully answered but i have tucked away in my handbag four or five letters to people of so great a position in life that i don't expect they will have any desire to be annoyed by me anyway i have decided to play i have selected europe as my playground and if i don't find any playmates i can at least stand by and watch the others i walked up that gangplank in a holiday spirit bound on a new adventure and for the first time in my life i felt absolutely free from the cares of this world i didn't have to worry where my next meals were coming from i didn't care if my hair got all mussed up my new dress got dirty or my stockings full of runs the whole world seemed full of smiles and my face wore a perpetual grin i must say that i felt very important too all of the members of my company had come down to see me off bringing me presents and flowers there was a cameraman too who was to take photographs of me for the moving picture magazines under the caption pearl white leaving for europe where she expects to get new ideas for her forthcoming photoplays and what a lot of ideas i collected but not for moving pictures the moving picture camera was there also to take my departure for the universal weekly i don't suppose the people who saw the film in the theaters cared at all whether i went to europe or not but my own little group of companions looked upon me as the woman of the hour and i certainly felt the part although i knew no one who was crossing on the same boat i worried not I was sailing to Europe on the wings of fate, and I didn't care which way I flew. A few months before, I had been working on the grounds of the New York University, and one young student, he was about seventeen, had helped me to get different groups of boys to work in some of the scenes. I guess I was the first actress that this youth had ever known, and, as he was himself harboring an ambition to become an actor, in his eyes i immediately became an object of admiration and adoration 
Each afternoon thereafter found him in my studio watching me act. He was an awfully nice stage-struck boy, who belonged to one of New York's most aristocratic families. Thus he comes into the plot. He was on hand early in the morning to drive me down to the boat in his father's car. He managed to stand next to me in the photographs and lingered on the gangplank until the last moment, feeling very much in the limelight and very important to himself. And there, amid tears, handshakes, goodbyes, and be sure and rights, into the scene walked two other young men who turned out to be a couple of old college chums. There was only a moment for a hasty introduction to the newcomers, who were to be passengers on the same boat with me. But as my young escort was being hustled ashore by a husky deckhand, he managed to impart the great news that I was the most wonderful, interesting, and entertaining girl in the world, and implored his old school pals to look after me on the way over. There exits my youthful admirer. So I dashed to stern of the boat to wave farewell to the camera on shore. With me dashed my two new companions, my first playmates in my new game of life. These two lads spent the first few days introducing me to their many relatives and friends on board, always slipping along the password that I was a very brilliant person. How easy it is to become popular on board ship when there is a bit of mystery attached to yourself, and you are advertised as being brilliant and entertaining. That was me. The passenger list was composed of some very smart people, and I was so thrilled and flattered by the attention they bestowed upon me that I didn't know whether I was on foot or horseback half the time. Me, poor little Pearl White, who had always labored from early morning until late at night, hobnobbing with the idle rich, that is comic enough. Ah, but the biggest laugh is yet to come. During the first few days the glamour of my new venture had kept my heart hitting on high, and I didn't have much time to think. But when my pulse did strike normal, I sort of calmed down to the grim realization that I was not contented and I didn't know just what was the matter. I do now. Romance? During my whole life, up until then, I had been so busy getting myself food, clothing, and shelter that I hadn't had time to get myself in love. But now, with relaxation, came a lot of sentiment, and mighty mushy sentiment at that. Sitting out on a deck chair at peace with the world, well, if you have ever fallen in love with a person whom you have only seen once, you know what silly thoughts chase each other through your mind. I had fallen. And as I looked into space, a vision of two very blue eyes, and a wonderful smile kept rising before me. Over and over I fancied myself again in Sherry's meeting him on that hot afternoon on the 3rd of July. Anyhow, I got so doggone lovesick that I didn't get seasick, so that helped some. To unravel the thread of my young love's dream, when on this said 3rd of July, I had decided on my hasty flight, I conceived the brilliant idea of calling up a friend, who was handling foreign films in America, and asking him for a letter of introduction to some of the moving picture studios in England, France, and Italy. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when I made this request, and the answer came back over the phone. 
Yes, certainly, he would gladly do so, but that he was leaving his office shortly to give a tea-party at Cherry's, and if I would join them there at five, he would have the promised letters, all signed and sealed, waiting for me. I was there on the minute of five. I had never been in Cherry's before, but I marched boldly in and joined the party. He was one of the party. I didn't hear his name when we were introduced, for he looked straight into my eyes and smiled. Heavens, what a smile he gave me! I guess it was the same one he bestowed upon all women. However, I didn't know this, and I immediately became all hands and feet, and felt foolish in general. Anyway, I managed to slip him my hand in acknowledgment of said introduction. Then it seems that in doing so, I shifted one of my feet, and planted it firmly upon a pet corn belonging to a lady standing next to me. And she, being a lady, screamed like a wounded eagle, while he, being a gentleman, leaped to her side, begging a million pardons, as though it was his foot that had done the damage, while I, being just an ordinary dunce, let him take the credit and just stood in mute admiration. This little act ruined my success with the ladies in the party, but I didn't care because he sat next to me at the table. I don't think I ever tried so hard in my life to be amusing. Of course, I was an awful failure. However, he, who by the way everyone called simply Bep, was a wonderful audience and laughed at my unfunny remarks. The tea was about over, so I collected my letters, and mine host proposed a toast to my trip abroad. "'Oh, are you going to my country?' inquired Bep. Now I didn't know just what country was his, but he had a foreign accent, so I took a chance and said, "'Oh, certainly.' Anyway, I was willing to go wherever it might be. "'Oh, that's fine,' said he. "'Don't you want me to give you a letter to the nicest man I know?' "'Of course I did.' So out to the writing-room we went, and he wrote not one letter, but three. The first was addressed to Rome. Ah, thought I, he must be an Italian, and know a lot of nice men. Then he had a fourth inspiration, and wrote one to London. Bobby is an awfully silly fellow, he announced, but I am sure he will amuse you. Of course I was sure, too. Besides, I was perfectly content to just sit there and look at him, and the more he wrote, the longer I could look. Silly, isn't it? He accompanied me out to the taxi, wished me bon voyage, and told me to be sure and write, and tell him how I liked his friends. There, I guess, the incident ended for him, but not for me. Those letters, I looked at them dozens of times on the boat. They were all addressed to baron, duke, or count, etc. There wasn't a mister in the whole bunch, and worse luck, they were all written in French, and signed merely, Bep meaning nothing to me. Now I had read of dukes, counts, etc., but never imagined that they were so plentiful, and I couldn't quite believe that one man could know so many. I was afraid some joke was being played upon me. Nevertheless, I was going to present at least one of them, so that I could write to Bep. If it were true, and I could meet so many people with titles, well, that sounded very grand to me. I think it was trying to get a little snobbish in my thoughts of the future. Speaking of titles, there was a young fellow on board who had been very attentive to me, but for some reason or other I did not like him much. 
I thought his name was just Smith, until one day he sent a book to my cabin with his card, which read Mr. Lord Haskin Smith. What a thrill that handed me! A Lord! Mr. Lord, at that! None of my treasured letters were addressed Mr. Baron, Mr. Duke, etc., so I just naturally concluded that Mr. Lord was someone just that much more important. Well, I brightened up after that, and whenever I met Smith, I was all smiles and attention. I noticed he used to look rather funny at my, How do you do, Lord Haskin Smith? But I thought he was just sort of a strange young man, and I was proud to know him. One other on board, who plays an important part in this yarn, was a colonel, a man who for years had been spoken of as the handsomest man in London. So with this reputation to his credit he had won the hearts of scores of women. But the colonel was now getting old, and rather bored with the fair sex. However, somehow he rather took sort of a fatherly fancy to me, and we became good pals during those seven days on the ocean. So he promised to arrange a lot of parties for me when he got to London. I didn't know much of London, but I had been told that the Carlton was the smartest hotel there, and as I had decided to be smart, to the Carlton I took myself. The London season was at its height. Of course the hotels were crowded, and rooms had to be reserved days in advance. I didn't know this, and walked calmly in and wrote my name on the register. Then I received the sad news that there were no rooms to be had. I was in great grief, because I had told Bep that that was going to be my address, and I was simple enough to imagine that he might write me a letter. I guess my face must have shown my disappointment, because an old gentleman, whom I had also met on the boat, offered to give me his room, saying that he could bunk with some friends. Thus fate looked after me once again. End of Part 8